The following Dharma talk was given by monastic Shoan Ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shoan is a Dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Here's my opening image. So um, there's a jewel weed blossom. Do you know these? They're everywhere. It's orange, uh, grows kind of in the damp, um, little sort of almost orchid-like blossoms that have like, you know, it's like a, uh, 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 a cavern, a receptacle, an inner portion. And I was watching this bumblebee <laughs> and its furry little tuchus <laughs> sticking out of this um, jewelweed blossom. So just completely immersed in there with its bum poking out. Whole bumble body and mind. Desire. Having few desires, but having some. What might those be? How do we know? Do they matter? Why? I wanted to continue to explore this theme that's kind of emerging, this session about desire and to appreciate how edgy it is because in one very real sense, desire makes the whole world go round. And there's also this teaching about the shadow side of desire. So desire is the root of suffering, but what about this sublime, essential desire to wake up? I hope you're in touch with it. Maybe not right at this moment, but hopefully it's come to you at some point. It had to have. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Desire and its corollary, pleasure, also edgy. I was thinking about the um, very human uh, aspect of, of desire, not the rarefied kind of, um, or not rarefied, but the, the you know, bodhicitta, not like that kind of desire, but just everyday, <laughs> everyday um, desire and how that shows up in such a like beautiful, tender, revealing way at the bread table. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
you can almost feel like the hum of desire as like people circle around and like wait patiently or not so patiently for their chance to spread the butter or the peanut butter. <laughs> that like human anticipation of um, delight. And um, I think it was last week, I was, it was like after supper, last week was the Kudo retreat, so we had quite a number of people here, and it was after supper, I think, but it could have been lunch, could have been breakfast, and I had made my stop to the bread table and had my rice cake with peanut butter and just the right amount of jelly. And I was walking out the back door to the Sangha house, and there was um, a cluster of folks sitting on the benches right there at the, at the circular steps. And someone commented that it had been so pleasing to watch everybody come out with like their crackers kind of lit up. <laughs> and so, you know, like, is there something wrong with that? There's the problem, in other words. So yeah, desire, suffering, and like the wellspring of our vitality, right? Yes, yes, yes. So in working with desire, how do we, how do, we do that? How do we do that so we're not, um, so we're understanding correctly the teaching? So we're working with desire in a way that's liberative and not in a way that's going to actually shut down our vitality. And, and to appreciate that this is part of practice, that like learning about our desire and how to properly tend to it can be profoundly healing and freeing. Thanissaro Bhikkhu says, all phenomena, the Buddha once said, are rooted in desire. Everything we think, say, or do, even we come from desire. We were reborn into this life because of our desire to be. Consciously or not, our desires keep redefining our sense of who we are. Desire is how we take our place in the causal matrix of space and time. The only thing not rooted in desire is nirvana, for it's the end of all phenomena and lies even beyond the Buddha's use of the word all. But the path that takes you to nirvana is rooted in desire, in skillful desires. The path to liberation pushes the limits of skillful desires to see how far they can go. Thanissaro Bhikkhu goes on in this same essay to speak about um, this notion of skillful desire and the resolving and solution of a skillful desire. He says that um, the fundamental desire, and I think we could probably all attest to this, 
um, from our own practice and exploration is the desire, the, the, the desire for happiness. And that in a sense, underneath the Rolex or the peanut butter and jelly, all we really are looking for is to be happy. And of course, happy is just a word that's describing a live, embodied experience. So all of these secondary desires, we supplant our real desire for happiness, and we end up chasing after them. That's unskillful. We'll never find what we're looking for. It's like what Yudo was talking about the other day. It's just a constant cycle, because we're not actually relying on something that's stable or that can actually address what we're looking for. Thanissaro Bhikkhu talks about, does the solution work? He says, you can tell a desire is skillful if when you've solved it, the solution actually leads to happiness. So I suppose there's room for argument in there and experimentation those kinds of desires that lead us to temporary happiness, fleeting happiness. We just need to see that for what it is, right? I love a coffee ice cream cone, but if I think that's gonna deeply tend to my suffering, there's just more suffering in store. If, on the other hand, I can just enjoy it as a fleeting pleasure, no big deal. And then so, those pleasures, right? I mean, don't you practice fundamentally for pleasure? Like, your, your experience of zazen may not be marked by pleasure, I get that. But like, <laughs> but like hasn't practice to some degree or another brought you into closer contact with pleasure, however you explain that in your life? I hope so. I hope so. And I would say pleasure is an area of investigation also. What is pleasure? I remember some years ago in Doksan with Shugen Roshi, sort of confessing to my latent hedonism, and, um, you know, just the ways that, like, pleasure actually seemed like, pursuing pleasure actually seemed like a reasonable strategy, and I wasn't so sure about, like, giving that up. And um, I was having my doubts. <laughs> and he said, well, you don't yet know what true pleasure is. the path of waking up, the path of true pleasure. I want to give a shout out to Hojin Sensei at this moment because her teachings on pleasure have been woven through my practice life, much for my benefit. 
Sometimes in session, people will speak about profound pleasure, coming upon it, honest moments, closely observing dew on a blade of grass, listening to the sounds of the clinking cutlery in the dining hall at supper. (laughs) Once I had a moment of totally sublime transport, I woke in the middle of the night to this sound. It was so beautiful. And then my thinking mind came in and I realized it was the sound of someone peeing. So there's a sense in which our practice life can be a refinement of our relationship to desire and pleasure. Seeing what's sticking, what's attachment, that's the road to suffering. That's ordinary desire, sort of your grocery store variety. The practice of desire, getting in touch with desire as like a fundamental life force, a basic energy. And the practice of pleasure as naturally arising in a mind and a heart that are at peace. I um, wanted to share this excerpt of an interview Uh, that really speaks to this um, point. It's um, a conversation between a a journalist, Jennifer Wong, and a poet, Lee Young Lee. And um, this is from 2018, and I guess he had a book that had just come out, a book of new poems. And um, the the interview is... is, is, uh, uh, about the the book of poetry, and and it sort of covers a lot of ground and East and West and many things. It's quite um, a remarkable conversation. And at one point, um, the the interviewer asks, "In, in the language of these new poems, where does violence end and redemption begin? So if you just um, broaden her question to uh, sort of where, where does the point between suffering and liberation, what's the pivot when we're speaking about our experience? So Lee Young Lee says, the honest answer is, I don't know. But the question is too important to try not to form at least an orientation toward a meaningful response. I believe desire may be at the heart of the issue of violence and redemption. Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu, and the Buddha all seemed to know this. We know what the Buddha said about desire and suffering. And a lot of the Taoist alchemical literature talks about the world-destroying, corruptive characteristics of unrefined, unsublimated desire. It may be that desire that isn't alchemized, that isn't sublimated, leads to an attitude of fear, 
paradigms of scarcity, and a worldview characterized by life for some and death for others. Violence. Or greed, anger, and ignorance. On the other hand, sublimated desire, alchemized desire, leads to an attitude of love, paradigms of abundance, justice, creativity, and life for all living things. Could think of that as the aspiration to wake up. So this point that he's making, and it's a bit of a dense paragraph, I realize now, reading it out loud, but I'll, I'll just review that, that basic crux, is, is this point about, like, um, in, in Taoist teachings in particular, he, that seems to be what he's familiar with and what he's citing, that there's a, um, a, a world-destroying, corruptive um, quality to desire in its raw form, right? If you just like let your desire rip, it's going to just shoot everything to hell. We see that, right? That's the three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance. I'm at the center. I want what I want. I'm going to go out there and get it. And everything else is just collateral damage, literally. And then he's saying that same desire can be alchemized, it can be sublimated, it can be channeled, it can be refined, it can be made pure, transmuted. That same quality. And then when you do that, that sublimated, alchemized desire leads to love, abundance, justice, creativity, life. It's the same energy. Where is it being alchemized? In you, in your mind and heart. I think that's so helpful. We're, we're, we're developing a relationship with desire, a refining, purifying, alchemizing relationship to desire, not just trying to erase it or obliterate parts of ourselves or whittle it down to just the bare minimum. Later in the same conversation, he talks about how um, desire has this quality that it, it can be imitative and so that we're so susceptible to taking on desires that aren't actually ours but that are given to us and that's how advertising works. Somebody tells you what you want and you can like break your back to get it. And then maybe, maybe at some point realize like, wait a second, <laughs> I didn't need that. Who, who even wanted that? What's going on? So to know what we really want, to get to our true desires. And this can actually be a piece of work that some of us need to do. Sometimes we're frozen, or we don't know what we want, or we've never been asked, or we've always been told, 
And so to kind of bring that healthy desire online and feel into it becomes a really big part of reclaiming our vitality. In um, Carol Lee Flinders' book from 1998, it's old, but uh, looking at it again recently, I think it was holding up remarkably well, called At the Root of This Longing, Reconciling a Spiritual Hunger and a Feminist Thirst. She starts to look at, as a, a meditator and a spiritual practitioner, she starts to look at like the, the places of tension where she found like her feminist values were colliding with the um, spiritual teachings that she was being. Uh, I want to I unpack a little bit of, of, of that. Um, and so I'll be speaking from my own experience as a woman. And I want to acknowledge that what she's talking about isn't limited by gender. And that many of us may have felt that we haven't been able to claim desire in our life. Perhaps from being part of a group that's been excluded from the desire dream. We don't feel we have a right, and so we don't even open that door. Or perhaps from trying to conform and fit in and belong in a culture that has very limited acceptance for what's okay. So she has one section of the book where she talks about desire. And um, she calls um, mysticism, uh, and I believe she's, she's quoting others, um, the science of desire. Don't you love that? The science of desire, mysticism. So like really like studying closely this human experience, what makes us tick, how it works, and the recognition that if we just keep pursuing our desires in the ordinary fashion, we won't go deep. We'll be on that hamster wheel, just spinning, spinning, spinning. So the mystic teachings teach renunciation. Let go of your desires. And then what happens if we're coming into ourselves and we think, I've spent all these years telling having people tell me, like, what you want doesn't matter. Just do this in service to others. Finally, I'm coming into my own, and this is the teaching? But it is the teaching. That's why it's edgy. We have to understand what does it really mean. And part of that is knowing what we want, not being afraid of desire. She says, um, she's, she's quoting a study from the, the early 90s um, where there was a, um, uh, there was an Ivy League school where they had no women um, Rhodes Scholars. So the Rhodes Scholarship was started in the early 1900s, 1902, very prestigious. Um, was not opened up to women until 1976. What? Anyway, so this is uh, not quite 20 years uh, after that. And, um, 
in this, in this study, um, the, the folks at the Ivy League institution said that, you know, they had, there were so many women in the institution who could totally qualify. They totally had the grades, they had athletic talent, they had social responsibility, but when the interviewers would ask them, well, so what do you want the scholarship for? They didn't know what to say. She quotes, wanting had no place in their lives. These were champion good girls who had done everything right. They were accustomed to doing well and to jumping through hoops. Although successful, they were disconnected from the desire that sprang from the yes within them. I remember being in first grade and um, my um, friend Jessica B. Jessica B. and um, I, her mom was taking us to Twin Donuts. And this actually happened repeatedly. It was like a Friday ritual. Twin Donuts was right around the corner from school. And on Friday, we would stop at Twin Donuts, get a donut, and then we would go to Jessica's house for a play date. And um, I have this memory. I don't know if it was like the first time we were in Twin Donuts or like, you know, five visits in. But um, what I remember is um, uh, Jessica's mom turning to me and saying, okay, so Danica, what, what kind of donut do you want? And I said, I don't care. And she said, well, what do you want, honey? Come on. I said, I, I don't care. And I remember there was one of those like chrome things that like guides the line, you know, those things like at the bank. And I remember like holding onto it and starting to like hang from it out of anxiety as Jessica's mom, who PS by the way, was studying to be a psychoanalyst or something, <laughs> like looked at me and wouldn't let me go. Yeah. And finally, I decided to just have what Jessica B was having, honey dipped. Many years later, in my late 20s, I was um, in a period of depression and I was working with a therapist. And um, I remember her saying like, well, maybe like, just like go out and like, Go, like, get yourself some nice clothes. And I must have just been like, nothing. And she was like, you know, like, don't, don't you know where you'd want to shop? And I was like, no. She was like, well, don't you know, like, what kind of shirts look good on you? And I was like, no. Those moments stay with me. Now I have no problem ordering donuts. <laughs> and the few times that I go shopping, that's not a problem either. And also, P.S., by the way, I did look it up. And um, last year, in 2022, out of 32 US scholars, 22 were women, Rhodes Scholars. And um, this year, it's... Uh, even split between men and women, half and half, in the US. 
if you look, if you look globally, because I guess they're drawn from all across the globe, there are more women um, than men this year, too. So our heart knows, but we need to get in touch with it. And that desire to wake up, to get in touch with that too. I remember when I sat before the Guardian Council to become a student, and that question was asked of me of of why, you know, why did I want to do that? I remember feeling like, should I really say it? It seemed so audacious to say, well, I want to be enlightened. Can we say it? Can we own that desire? Desire moves things. It manifests change. That tension between desire and renunciation is so beautifully sort of brought vivid when I think of um, the, uh, the women's ordination history and Mahapajapati. And I just finished reading um, this book that came out pretty recently. Shugan Roshi spoke about it a few weeks ago. It's called The Woman Who Raised the Buddha by Wendy Garling. And it's a, um, a, a deep dive into original um, texts and fragments of texts um, in the early Buddhist teachings uh, in India, in Thailand, in Burma, um, uh, that have been preserved. And she's sort of piecing things together to paint a fuller picture and basically saying, like, you know, here in the West, we need to like catch up to what a big deal Mahapajapati is in the Buddhist tradition or was in her time. And that her import has not been fully recognized. And when we go looking for, um, you know, uh, uh, where is the feminine in Buddhism, that we should really take note of um, what's been there all along. And so um, she, she, she does, I think, a, a beautiful job of sort of bringing these fragments together. And again and again, her point is, is to say, like, look how important she was during the Buddha's time. Look how important she was that she's been um, honored in these different stories and traditions. And I, I did a little bit of um, research on the side, because for me, her book really came alive in the last chapter, or almost last chapter, where she's describing um, Mahapajapati's um, entry into nirvana. And she's drawing a lot on the um, apadana, which are these collections of um, historical, or you know, historical sort of um, hagiographies, right? Um, uh, stories, narratives about the lives of certain Buddhist luminaries, but um, 
clearly uh, embellished to um, make a point. And so, um, you know, all of the, there's, there's a, quite a lot of, of these stories, um, over 600, and um, each, each one is basically telling the, the story of how a, um, an individual person came to attain nirvana and, um, and, and their release from samsara. And I think this is such a great detail. So 559 of the stories in the Apadama are about men, and 40 are about women. But the, um, the footnote pointed out that although in terms of pages, men are vastly more, um, there's more text attributed to the male voice, that if you look just in terms of bodies and beings, there are actually many more nuns in the text because one of the texts is about 10,000 nuns that all enter nirvana, and another is about 18,000 nuns that all enter nirvana together, and another is about 84,000 nuns that all enter nirvana together. So there. <laughs> But the thing that was so cool, and Garling talks about this, and then as I was reading um, this other scholar, Jonathan Walters, he was going into a little bit more detail. But her, her story in the Apadana um, is remarkable for um, the different markers of a Buddha's nirvana that are used. So we read last Ango, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, and... Um, uh, for example, when, when it's time for the Buddha to die, to pass into nirvana, there's like this giant earthquake and clap of thunder, and everyone's like, what's going on? And the Buddha's like, okay, so that happens when a Buddha's about to die. And everyone's like, okay, so Buddha, oh no, does that mean you're dying? And the same thing happens in um, Mahapajapati's story, but she's first. She dies before the Buddha. The Buddha's present for her death. And all of these miracles and things happen, and, and um, um, this, this, this piece that I was looking at does like a, a, a very tight comparison showing how m the um, Apadana story of Mahapajapati like really mirrors the um, story of the Buddha's nirvana. Like it begins, the Buddha's, the Buddha's nirvana story begins like he's, he's in Vasali and he's gathered there with all his monks. And in Mahapajapati's nirvana story, it begins in Vaisali, and she's gathered there with all her nuns. And so the point is made that like there is a female Buddha, that Mahapajapati was seen and revered and looked to as a Buddha, an enlightened being, that her nuns and her disciples saw her in that way, that the Buddha himself within this story reveres her and points to her nirvana as evidence of her attainment. Mahapajapati and all those nuns and their desire to wake up. How unstoppable. 
So to listen to our true and deep desires, to allow them to help us orient, to appreciate that Buddha nature expresses itself in desire, that our creativity is twined with desire. Desire moves our hearts, our feet, our minds. It's sacred. How do we alchemize? How do we transmute? What is true pleasure? Closing the gap. Robert Haas, the poet, wrote, Longing, we say, because desire is filled with endless distances. The desire comes and it shows us the gap. Not necessarily in a bad way. And so we can see the distance and bring our practice forward. How do we drop down? What is this alchemy? It's the alchemy of intimacy. (laughs) Someone was pointing out recently that like, new to the Sangha, they heard this word like intimacy, intimate, you know, and it's kind of connotations of desire. I remember thinking the same thing. Maybe there's something there that we can use. Desire by Alice Walker. My desire is always the same. Wherever life deposits me, I want to stick my toe and soon my whole body into the water. I want to shake out a fat broom and sweep dried leaves, bruised blossoms, dead insects, and dust. I want to grow something. It seems impossible that desire can sometimes transform into devotion. But this has happened. And that is how I have survived. How the whole I carefully tended in the garden of my heart, grew a heart to fill it. Worldly desire thinks that control is the answer, that we have to go and make things how we want them to be. But alchemized desire knows better. It's already perfect. Where's your devotion? Can you open up to what is? Anam Tubton says, true Buddhism is devotional surrender to life. I love that. If we turn to pleasure in any moment and ask ourselves deeply within our body and mind, where is the pleasure in this moment, can I find it? Really? Not as an idea, 
as an intimate experience that's not differentiating, that's not picking and choosing. Why is intimacy pleasurable? We're meeting ourself, our natural mind, one thing, and oneness feels good. Oneness feels good. Oneness feels good because it's true. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.